The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Almighty God, to some degree we are aware that as we bow our heads and close our eyes and lift up voice audibly or in our hearts, to some degree we are aware that when we do that we speak to one who is vast, eternal, almighty, high above all that we can imagine. Hallowed be your name. You're great, and to some degree we are aware of that, but, but not nearly to the degree which it is true. You are God. And we who are your people can bow and can lift up voice to you because while being high and lifted up and almighty, you indeed look upon us and care for us and acted to redeem, to rescue insignificant ones like us. And so you sent your Son, God the Son, fully God, high and lifted up himself, lowly in the form of a man, as a servant, crucified even. In your mercy and in your condescending grace, you open up a path for us to talk to you and to be with you. We understand some of that, but not nearly as much as it is true. You welcome us. You, the Almighty One, welcome us, are delighted by us, your people. happy that we come and speak and make requests then of you because you are, are happy to answer requests because it shows you an almighty, gracious giver. And so we make great requests of you this morning. We ask you to make us all completely different. To make us people who are not who are not bound by the stuff that grieves us, let alone you. Who are not bound by the things of this world and, and wrapped up in things that are of no consequence but seem so large. Would you free us from that? That kind of an existence. Make us different people. Mature us. Grow us up into the people that we are supposed to be, we're designed to be, and you promise us will one day be. Make us that, Lord. Move us towards it even today, this morning as we open up this passage. Would you mature us, your people, and make us new? Please, graciously do not leave us as we are. Sometimes like, like crazy-minded kids, we, we say, leave us alone when we really want you to engage. So we, your children, we, we sometimes resist you, but we really want you to engage. We really want you to, to stoop down and in great grace now make us completely different. Change us. Do that this morning, please, with this passage. Would you build a people here in this church because of what you do this morning more closely resembles what your people in heaven are like. Glad in you, consumed by you, sold out to you to their great joy. Come near now, I, I pray God, and make that happen here this morning. Do you give clarity to your word? And really, there's not that much of there's not that much text here this morning before us, but would you 
Help us to clearly understand it and then open it up to us that we would see what it's about. What we are to be. We need your spirit for that. So Father, would you send him to run through our midst here to to grab our attention, to keep us from distraction, to keep us from worrying more about temperature and food and the rest of the schedule today and to, to focus our attention on you. Would you also, Spirit of God, would you cause the, the words that I read and say to, to land right on us, to land properly? That we each would discern your, your word to us, your message. We ask for that help from you, Spirit. Father, would you tell him to do that? Would you send him to lift up Christ before our eyes, that we would be drawn after him to live for him. That's our hope. That's our prayer. Make us completely different. Thank you for promising to be with us and never to leave us nor forsake us, but to always be working to grow us. Make a church that's pleasing to you for your honor and for our good. Thank you, Lord. Amen. turn our attention this morning to Philippians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul continues his reflection on his imprisonment and on his upcoming trial. Paul's in chains awaiting trial before Caesar because of Christ, because of his bold and consistent witness for Christ. It's a difficult situation to be sure, but as we saw, one in which he rejoices. Paul takes joy in the fact that his imprisonment has created opportunity for the other guards and for other people in Caesar's household to hear about what he is there for, why he's there, what he's about, Christ. And he rejoices that it's created opportunity as it has emboldened other Christians. They've seen him imprisoned and seen him enduring and seen him testify for Christ. They're emboldened by that and they have taken the opportunity to preach Christ throughout the city. So Christ is being known, and even if some of those folks who are talking about Christ are doing it for bad motives because they, they got it in for Paul in some way, even if it means uh, hardship for Paul in prison, he doesn't care because he has his loves in order. He loves Christ above all things, including himself. And so he's, he's delighted that his life would be used to create opportunity to magnify Jesus. And in fact, last week we saw that as Paul looks ahead at his upcoming trial, he knows that he will rejoice at the trial and at the outcome, whatever that is. He realizes it will be another opportunity for Christ to be honored in his body as believing that God will give him the Spirit in power and the Spirit working in him will hold him away from what would be the natural temptation to turn away from Christ and will turn him instead to boldly speak of Christ. Christ will be honored at the trial, whatever the outcome, life or death. And so he's delighting over that too. It's a complicated sentence, but the focus is very clear. Paul rejoices when Christ is honored in life or in death. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning, because as he mentions the two possible outcomes of the trial, life or death, he doesn't know how that will work out, it gets him thinking about life and death. And he goes on to say a little more about how it is that Christ would be honored either in his life or in his death, and that brings us to verse 21. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 24 this morning, where Paul contemplates life and death. A very famous sentence, probably the most famous sentence that Paul ever wrote. Perfect description of him. If he hadn't written it about himself, somebody else would have. Because it summarizes Paul quite well. What Paul says here, and we're going to look at this this thought continues through this week and through next week, although next week's actually two weeks from now. I'm going to preach something different next week because of the men's retreat. But this this week and the next time, we're going to be continuing and carrying the same basic thought through this section. And what he looks at here is supposed to characterize all of us as Christians. It certainly characterizes him, and it's supposed to be us. Let me sum it up with this, this sentence. In Christ, life is purposeful and death is profitable. 
simple sentence I'm going to work on in two different sermons. In Christ, life is purposeful and death is profitable. If you flip that around, you can find then, unfortunately, that not in Christ, life is purposeless and death is, it, is in fact, hopeless. So most of our emphasis these two weeks is going to be on, on Christians, on those who are genuine Christians, and, and to speak to us about purpose and about, about hope and profit. But I need to be very clear that, that beneath all that or behind all that, there is, there is an inherent warning that apart from Christ, we don't meet purpose, we meet purposelessness. And we don't meet profit, we meet hopelessness apart from Christ. Be clear about that. Beginning at the end of verse 18, I'm going to read down through verse 26 to give us the larger context. And I'll be focusing on drawing out two observations from verses 21 through 24. End of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Because of my coming to you again. That's the passage. As I said, we'll be focusing on verses 21 to 24. I'll make two observations. Here's the first one. The mature Christian lives joyfully focused on bearing fruit for Christ. The mature Christian lives joyfully focused on bearing fruit for Christ. Verse 21 begins with, with wording that, as Paul puts it, draws attention to himself. I might put it like this. He begins saying something like, As for me, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's drawing attention to himself. So this is Paul, very personal. This is his own perspective. This is how he thinks about how he looks at things. But as soon as we say that, we must understand that that's supposed to be for all of us. When we look at, at Paul, we look at a mature Christian, one who has walked with Christ, who is deep with Christ, and we see what we are to be like. He even says later, of course, in his book, in chapter 3, in a similar context, he says, speaking of similar things, he says, now let those of us who are mature think like this. Think like me, is what he means. And if you don't, God will fix that and correct your way of thinking. It's bold and true. Let those who are mature think like Paul, and if you don't, God will draw you to think like Paul. Not to do, exactly, not to do what Paul does. Paul's an apostle. Paul's called to plant churches throughout the Mediterranean to write much of the New Testament. That's, that's not exactly us. But the mindset, when we look at a mature Christian, we say what he values, what he loves, what he lives for, how he thinks, that is to characterize us. That is what we are to be as mature Christians. This is mature Christian faith. To me, and should be to us, to live is Christ. Which he follows then with his perspective on death, 
And those goes back and forth between the two, contemplating which he would choose as if he has a choice. God, through Caesar, is going to decide that issue for him. Paul doesn't really have a choice, but he's, but he's thinking about it. He's looking at both of them as desirable, life and death. We're going to consider death in, this, consider death in the second observation. But right now he's thinking about life. To live is Christ. A stunning and simple statement. You really, we church, we have to stop and, and sit in front of this. It is so simple. Here's mature Christianity. He looks at life here and now and sums it all up in a single word. Christ. We have to think about that to understand what he means, but we should note he helps us a little bit in verse 22 because he elaborates a little bit in 22. As he weighs out the two options, he has more to say about living. To live is Christ, and then verse 22 to live, if, if I go on living, that means fruitful labor for me, for Christ. So put the two together. Connecting the two, if I am granted life today, or tomorrow, or the day after, that tells me something. Christ, period. Or put another more more elaborate way, it tells me something. To live laboring fruitfully for Christ. Not working for me, for my family, friends, although it is indirectly beneficial to them, as he points out in verse 24, he's going to help the church. But I have one master, and I am simply his servant, and if he has given me life today, it is for him for labor for him, for Christ. The sun comes up tomorrow. He has granted me life. And that means I now know, awakening today with life given to me by my Master, I now know what is to characterize this day for me. What is to fill my thoughts? What is to control my desires? To direct my actions? What I am to live for? What I am to seek to advance, enhance, spread, grow? What I am to honor? What I am to be about? What I am to work for? Christ. That's why I'm here, given one more day from his hand. Christ is all. Paul says, I live to see fruit born in my life, things happen in me and through me that will advance Christ's name, his fame, his kingdom reign everywhere. I live relating everything to Christ, doing everything for Christ, everything because of Christ, for the advancement of Christ in me and in others around me, what I eat or abstain from, the places I travel to and remain, the punishment I endure, the things I say, all of it is for Christ. He has a singular focus. Christ. Let all who are mature think this way. The mature Christian lives joyfully focused on bearing fruit for Christ. That is mature faith. It is not complicated. It should characterize each of us. I doubt anybody disagrees with me, any Christian disagrees with me, 
Frankly, many of us have memorized this verse because we are very fond of the noble sentiment in it. And in honesty, in honesty, it often doesn't get much further than noble sentiment. One sadly set aside as we live focused on something else. How many of us would have to say, the sun came up today, and I drew from that fact warrant, permission, to live for me. Pursuing all that the world has to offer to me. Pursuing God if he has much to offer to me. But pursuing what is offered to me. Now, I have to say something here because I do not, Christian, listen to me, I, I do not want to come across mean to you. I want to come across Clearly, I am not saying, Christian, that we set aside, that we throw out, that we disown our Christian faith and then proceed living for self. I'm saying that tragically, we embrace Christian faith and use it to live for self. I want to be clear about that because there's a tragedy there. We, we turn this great faith about this great Savior and this great Master, and we turn that to say, how can it be used, employed, how, how can it be supportive of what, what actually I am about? We need to sit here in front of this not under condemnation, but perhaps under conviction. There is a difference. Condemnation bears down on you promising destruction. Conviction falls on you calling you to change for good. I think, in honesty, every one of us should sit here beneath conviction in front of this truth. Some perhaps under condemnation if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to come to Christ. But conviction should sit on all of us, church. The grand singular obsession for the bulk of humanity and tragically for much of what calls itself the Christian church, the grand singular obsession is self. As for me, I don't know about Paul, but as for me, to live is me. Many of us. Come on. Is that you? Pursued in my mind with my energy, that for which I hope and aspire to advance is a personally fruitful life. Personally fruitful life for my comfort and pleasure and ease and safety and prosperity and respect and dignity and justice for me. Think of all the ways this plays out. And we have to think very carefully about this because it is so subtle and it often, in the best of us, and, and I do not mean, I am not trying to drop the hammer on you, church. I'm trying to be clear about something for your good it is so subtle how this lives because it lives right alongside of, of a, a genuine expression of love for Christ, but it's right in there with the songs that we sing and, and with the, the, the good ways that we walk with the Lord, there are bad ways that we use the Lord right alongside of. So look, a commitment to self lives, itself, lives out in, in strong ways and in weak ways, in our strength. We work and we strive and we make money and we acquire possessions and we enjoy friendships 
We go on vacations and we successfully argue our positions and we pursue education and career advancement and we, we find a spouse and we have kids and we buy houses and etc. Oh, so commonly, all about me. If you, if you are, are older and well-established in business with a long line of grandkids after you, if you're 18 and you just graduated from high school, you're all the same. We are us, people. Pursuing where you go to college, who you marry, what job you want, the transferring to that city to get that job there. Oh, so much of it. Stop, Christian, and ask yourself, look, so much of it is just without thinking. What do I want? What pleases me? How can I advance myself? So much. And I, and I am not saying that that is apostasy because it comes right alongside of a, a genuine, heartfelt praying at church and, and a giving of time and, and energy and effort and finances and, and a hoping to pursue Jesus and right along with the never asking him what I should do about my career or what I should be doing with my marriage. In our strength, in our successes, in our advancing and in our striving, it is oh so often to live is self. And in our weaknesses, I need to be careful with this because there's a danger here that if, if I speak clearly, I will crush the person who is in the weak spot here. But self in strength and self in weakness both grow from the same common core, self. It just looks different. It's the flip side of strength or failed strength. When you don't get the job and don't enjoy the friendships and suffer health consequences and don't get into that school and she doesn't want to go out with you, we fear and worry and complain and criticize and blame and flail about in desperation and sink into sorrow and apathy and depression. Because my eyes were on self and self just didn't get what self wanted. It looks very different, and it is the same issue. There is something difficult for us here. How far short we fall of mature Christian faith that sits in prison, maligned, and says, Bless the Lord because Christ is exalted. That stands before Caesar with his head on the line, Bless the Lord because Christ is exalted. I need to be very clear about something here. Because I am not suggesting that we should stop going to work, stop going on vacation, stop watching sports, stop applying to colleges, stop applying to jobs, stop pursuing spouses, stop having kids so that you can bear fruit for Christ. You do not, I am not saying, he is not calling us to focus on bearing fruit for Christ instead of my life, but rather in my life, in all of those things. Those are the things that make up life. The problem is not that you apply for a job. The problem is that you apply for a job without any concern, without any singular focus even more, to live as Christ in this job, in this application. To live as Christ in this relationship. The relationship, the job, etc. That's not the problem. It's, it's what I'm doing in it that's the problem. 
Throughout all the things that make up this day for me, when the sun rises, I have a life which is going to entail 50 things, 100 things today. And in all of them, whether working or playing or visiting with a friend or helping kids with homework, whether eating or drinking or whatever I'm doing, I should do it all for the glory of Christ. And again, put like that, who will object? Nobody. Sound a lot like a Bible verse, because it was. Who will object? But who will live it? Right, right there, you, you see what should be a conviction that falls on us. None of us object, and all of us, if we're honest, if we look at our lives, say, there's Paul and mature Christian faith to live as Christ, and here's me. Perhaps repentance is in order for you. May God renew our minds by His Spirit. And notice what I'm doing here. I'm about to, to move our time right here. I'm about to move our time because if I stop right there, I have just preached to you the law. which is good and right and holy. Do not fall into the Christian trap that says the law is bad. Read Paul and watch him praise the law. The law is good and right and holy. Indeed, you should, and it is permissible to use the word should, you should, I should, we should live with singular focus on bearing fruit for Christ. We should, says the law. We don't, says our lives. How can I? Here's how, says the gospel. Paul didn't just stumble into this, this mature Christian faith. He didn't just, well, I was just made this way. I guess I am. Paul's got something going on inside of him that can go on inside of you. That can move you from what you are to what you should be. Some of this is found in the the larger context, the preceding verses and things we've talked about before. And there's also one particular thing that we could find in verse 22. But in the larger context, oh, that we, like Paul, given by the Spirit, that we, like Paul, would see who we are and who Christ is. Paul never forgot. He had a little help that it was so dramatic for him. Some of us have had equally dramatic experiences. Paul never forgot how he was claimed as a servant, met on the Damascus Road, knocked down and blinded by Jesus claimed to be a servant from that point on, shown the suffering that would follow. Again, we don't have quite his life, but we have his same experience. Met and claimed. If you were a Christian, you've been met and claimed. Transferred. You are, remember verses 1 and 2, you are simply a servant, but you are also a saint. Drawn out of the world and out of the world's way of thinking, set apart to him. Who is him? This son. Do you remember? This Son. God, the Son, forever in eternity past, the delight of the Father. This Son sent to become flesh, to save, to get you, to acquire you, to redeem you, to clear away your sin, and to draw you back into the fellowship of this good God. This Son claimed you. This Son is your Master. May the Spirit open your eyes to show you who you are, what has happened to you, and by whom it was done. This Son in all of His glory and in all of His goodness poured out love on you. And He convinced you what is, perhaps even, what is perhaps even counterintuitive, that living for self is not even in self's best interest. 
that to live a life given over as a servant to this master in all of his good glory is what is in fact best for you. Paul is, that is front and center Paul's conviction. He recognizes my deepest, fullest, longest, widest joy is found in the exaltation of, in the delighting of this other. I will lay down my life to get that for my own joy. May the Spirit convince you that your joy also is not found in living for self. It is found in living for Christ for self. That's a work of God. That's all the larger context that the Spirit of God must press onto you, remind you of, show you of, give you eyes to see and faith to believe. You have been claimed by a glorious one who now lives in you and reigns over you and means to direct and control all of your life for his own glory and for your great good. In some way, it is perhaps a bit like a woman who becomes pregnant. A bit like a woman who becomes pregnant. What happens when a woman becomes pregnant? She's the same person, but she's different. She's the same person. She does not throw out that life. She does have to throw out some things from that life. Maybe she gives up alcohol. Maybe she decides to not run that marathon she was training for. Maybe some things go, but other things, the same stuff happens. It's done differently. She still eats, she still sleeps, still exercises, but differently now. All in light of some other one that has come to live inside of her and for whom she has great affection and for the good of whom she is willing to lay aside all kinds of things she was otherwise interested in, so as to bless that other one, because that would be her own joy. She never forgets this one living inside of her. It becomes almost impossible to forget. The Spirit of God must upon us, who are believers here, must upon us put his hands and, and press into us and give us eyes to see there is one more glorious than any infant, more, more glorious than any other human being that has come to live inside of us who means to change all of your life. Some things must go completely, but some things are just modified and done differently. Your life doesn't end. Your life is just changed to be about some other one. Jesus, Christ, glorious Son. That's the larger context, and the Spirit of God must open our eyes. If we are to live for Christ, He must open our eyes to Christ. And secondly, he must remind us of something in verse 22. I've used the word, but I haven't really touched on it yet. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful, fruitful labor for me. Paul calls it fruitful labor, not just labor, because he knows that Christ will bear fruit through him. I will engage in fruitful labor because Christ will bear fruit through me. I will live for Christ. He will bear fruit. I have no idea when, where, and how, but it will happen. His name will be hallowed. His kingdom will come. I will get to be a part of that.
He's commanding you, live for Christ, and He's inviting you, live a fruitful, purposeful, productive life, investing in fruit that is promised and that will remain. Come and follow me and reap the benefits with me. Reap the benefits of me. And that phrase, of me, is what's going to be my connection to the second observation in a moment. But I want to hang out one more second on this fruitful. Something in us eats at pointlessness, at, at emptiness, at our wheels spinning. You know what it's like to, to go to work, to go to work, to go to work, to do whatever it is you do every day and then ask at the end, what was the point of that? What, why did, what happened there? What was that about? Well, got to do it again next week. Hate it. We, something about us human beings, we great, we are, we are eaten inside by the sense of being useless, pointless, meaningless. You cut purpose out of our lives, you cut our lives out. How many people die right after they, shortly after retiring? That says something in general bad. But it, for this sake, it points out, when we feel a sense of, of loss of purpose, we feel a sense of loss of life. And Christ says, if I cause the sun to rise on you again today, and I give you life again today, Walk with me in purposeness, purposefulness. Walk with me into my kingdom building, all in my power, all to my glory, but you get to be a part of it, and you will enjoy it and delight in it as you see people, people and, and my kingdom growing, not just numerically, but also quantita- qualitatively. You will be an instrument in my hands, engaged in fruitful labor. Come, enjoy today with me. So you can know, I walk into my job today, I have no idea why pushing those papers from here to here meant anything, but it, it did if I walked into this to live as Christ Something in some way, even if I'm not aware of it, and I might be aware of some of it, was fruitful labor. I need that. A lot of us need that. He invites you to come, as well as commands you, come to live is Christ. That is, to live is a fruitful laboring Christ. For Christ, for Christ who has claimed you, changed all of you, come. A mature Christian lives joyfully, singularly focused on bearing fruit for him. And then second observation, which is a little shorter. The mature Christian joyfully considers death as the gaining of Christ. The mature Christian joyfully considers death as the gaining of Christ. Verse 21 again, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. As in, coming to possess something you want, but don't yet have, or don't yet have enough of. Gain. could translate the word perhaps as profit. It's the idea of acquiring more, something on top of, not about losing something, which is important. Paul is not viewing death as escape from suffering and hardship, an end to the misery. It is appropriate 
And in some contexts in the Bible, think of 1 Corinthians 15, for instance, in some contexts in the Bible, we are reminded and, and encouraged as we are taught that death is the end of the decaying body, the end of the falling apart, the end of the decline, the end of the sorrow and the darkness. So death can be, an, it can be described in the Bible, and it's okay to think about it, as an end or as a release from, as a turning away from. That's not wrong in and of itself. A little caution there. We can think about death in a very self-serving way. I mean, you, you hear it in all the times that we joke. When, when, in joking conversation, when does anybody say, take me now, Lord? Only in the midst of something terrible going on. Nobody says that in the middle of ecstasy. Nobody says that when everything's going really well. We, we say that, and we think that, that reveals self. See how that reveals self? I'm fine being here as long as it's going okay for me, but I went out as soon as it gets hard. Take me to glory. So a little caution there, but it is not in itself wrong to think about Death as an escape from, as a removal from decay and hardship and loss and suffering. That's just not what Paul means here. Paul here is talking about gain. Death is not escape, it is gain. Gain of what? Not gain of ease and comfort, but gain of Christ. Verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It is far better that I attain the goal of this walk, that I get to the end of it. That one for whom I have been living, I get him. I gain him. In a far better way than I have him now. Paul indeed, as we talk about all the time, we indeed talks about real intimate fellowship and communion with Jesus here and now that is sweet and real and full, but not as good as the far better to gain Christ, to be with Christ, which is far better than what we have now. He looks ahead at and considers a being with Christ. Now, while he does not give us a lot of details about it, and nowhere in the Bible does, there are a couple things we can understand. He's not talking yet about bodily resurrection. There is a day yet to come when the dead will be raised and those in Christ will be raised to eternal life. Those who are not in Christ will be raised to eternal death. There is a great judgment and a great resurrection bodily coming that has not happened yet. But Paul's dead. A long time now. He's not talking about bodily resurrected, bodily with Christ, but he is talking about truly with Christ. In a way that is conscious, that is intimate, that is better than what the spirit-indwelt Christian can have right now. Far better. What exactly is that? Well, there's the point where I have to say, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. It says that much. That should be enough. He's talking about something that is not bodily resurrection, but is also not... I die and I am like mentally clicked off and then I, I click back on sometime at the resurrection. No, you do not have a mental, a spiritual timeout for several thousand years. You die that moment with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. Far better than anything you know now. Earlier, Marilyn was prayed for. Marilyn is approaching death. Odds are, odds are, she'll beat all of us there. 
But that's not certain. That isn't certain. Every single one of us will die. That, that is certain. Christian. This is, the, this is the part where you have to stop and be disciplined to take your thoughts captive and submit them to Christ and say, death is gain. Death is a door. It's not the end, it is the door through which I walk to come into the presence far better. The presence of Christ. I find myself saying that out loud in front of all of you, and, and I find myself saying, do I believe that? So I know you're thinking that. Do you really believe that? It is true. There is... Something marvelous right there for you, Christian. On the other side of a, a very thin door. We assume we're going to live till we're a thousand years old. Maybe two thousand for me. Right? I'm immortal, probably. I'm never going to die. You probably will, not me. That's how we all think. That's how we all think. The veil between life and death is very thin. And if you are going to walk through this life right next to that veil, not fearing, you must know what's on the other side of that veil. You must see it and believe it. And so here we are right back to, oh, may God the Spirit open your eyes and cause you to see what Stephen saw as the stones were flying in Acts 7. He saw the Lord Jesus standing to receive him and said, oh, awesome, as the stones are flying. A few of us will die that dramatically. But do you see him? May the Spirit open your eyes and cause you to see there is a Christ with whom you will be the moment you die far better than anything you know now. This Jesus, how do you know He is full of glory? I would suggest there are pieces of evidence that you can consider. But ultimately, the Spirit of God must open your eyes to see what is there to be seen. You can consider the glory of this Son, eternal God, who descended and became a man to save you. You can consider that. You can consider it and yawn and turn away. Or you can consider it and weep for joy. The difference is not in the words on the page. The difference is in the Spirit of God who opens eyes and gives life and sight. I pray for you and I pray over you that God the Spirit would come and cause you to regard Jesus as more real than anything else that you see and would move you to say, I must live for Christ and I must die for Christ. To move you away from saying, I want to live for myself and I do not want to die at all. Our natural place. There is glory to be found in the presence of Jesus that only will come to you when he pulls back the veil and draws you through into death. Death is gain, says the mature Christian. I get Jesus. For those who believe, Because behind all of that, there, there is an, an implied warning that we must be clear about. If you are not a Christian, death is not gain. 
This same glorious Jesus, and thinking about this for you, Christian, this helps you to see the, the magnitude of the glory to realize the other side too. But this glorious Jesus has a face of iron hardness in judgment. He is the one to whom judgment of the world has been given. And he will sit on a throne and will not welcome into his presence, but will cast you out if you do not believe. With a face set firmly in anger and in righteous indignation, he will throw you into the fire of hell and anguish forever and ever and ever. That Jesus... Fear that moment. It is terrible. Do not play the, the mental game of denying, putting your fingers in your ears and closing your eyes and say, I do not believe that. It does not matter if you do not believe that. It is true. It is true. And it comes towards you. And the only escape from it is to right in this moment now flee to Jesus smiling with open arms and delighting to say, people, come to me. Come to me and find rest for your weary souls. I am a Savior. I am the one and only Savior. The only hope to deal with the wrath that is coming is to find it poured out on me for you. That's what the cross is about. The wrath of God, not eliminated, poured out somewhere else. On Jesus, in place of you. It is a terrible reality. Flee from it now to Christ now. And Christian, realize you will never see what I was just talking about. That face will never be turned towards you. Glory. Glory. You will never know God the Son in wrath judging. You will never know it. You will only forever and ever experience God the Son in pleasure, delighting, singing over you praise in pleasure. May God open your eyes to that Jesus and may He move you to, to believe that Jesus and to never forget that Jesus and to live for that Jesus. To delight that that Jesus would call you into fruitful labor with Him. And to believe that you gained that Jesus the moment you die and pass through the door into eternal joy. To live is Christ and to die is gain indeed. Let me pray. Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. All of your people here this morning must say that. We believe, but help our unbelief. And I am thankful that when we say that to you, we have come to the right place, to a great helper. who means to help us, who wants to help us. So please do, Father, intervene by your Spirit in the hearts and minds of your people. Even now, as we move towards communion, would you intervene to open our eyes and to see in little plastic cups filled with juice, to see the blood of a covenant that surely promises us life and glory. 
that surely washes away our sin. And for those here, Lord, who do not know you, would you open their eyes to see the open door that stands before them now. Call them through it powerfully. Act to save today. Draw people to trust Jesus today. Father, please. We look to you as our hope, and we say thank you for a Christ like this, one that we live for and labor for and get when we die, a Christ like this. Thank you. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.